That's John chapter 17, verse 20. This first reading, Jesus is praying for his disciples on the night before he died, and having prayed for the 12 apostles who were with him, he then began to pray for us, who would believe in him through the apostles' witness. And this is what he prayed. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The second reading is from Ephesians 4 and it can be found on page 1007 of the Church Bibles. Unity and maturity in the body of Christ. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. My name is Ed. I'm the congregational pastor here at 7pm. And we are in our seventh week of a series on the church, the doctrine of the church. What is the church? What ought the church to look like? Um, how, do we, how are we to behave as church? And tonight we're looking at the idea uh, of church as a united people, or the unity of the church. So in the Nicene Creed, a statement that Christians have been saying since 381 AD, we say these words. We say, we believe in one holy Catholic, Catholic being the universal church, church everywhere, one holy Catholic and apostolic church to which the watching world uh, from outside the church says to us, well, I'm glad that you believe that, but you sure are having a good deal of difficulty getting on with what you believe. Like the rest of the things you believe, you can't put them into practice, they say. Well, as you look at the church, it doesn't look particularly united, does it? 
as you look around, there are multiple denominations. There's a huge sort of wedge between Roman Catholicism and Protestant denominations in the church. Even Christians, it seems, can't get on. And I want to just begin by saying that it is hard for people to get on. Just in general, you know, it's easy to say, just get on with one another. But we know that getting on with one another is difficult. Uh, We see it in marriage and family breakdown. We see it when best friends become worst enemies. Uh, We know that it's hard for people to to get on on an international scale. Uh, There's been so much talk, hasn't there, about North Korea and South Korea. They have trouble getting on. Uh, We even have a, a military force devoted to peacekeeping because we're so bad at getting on. Well, if that's the case in the world, sadly, it is also the case in the church. But why is it that we have so much trouble being united? There's a number of different things. I think the first one is that we have trouble because we don't understand what it is that unites us, uh, what it is that is meant to bring us together. And so if we don't know what exactly unites us, then what should that unity look like? Uh, Second, we have things that undermine our unity, sin and hurt and and. Uh, past damage that we've done to one another. And then if we're really honest, the third reason is that it's just hard work getting on with people who are different to you. It's much easier to just unite yourself with people who are like you. Well, the goal of our sermon tonight is to work out what it is that God calls us to be united in. If we know what it is that we're to be united in, then we can understand what unity should look like. And my prayer is that you would see that unity is a a thing to be enjoyed and a thing to be pursued. And that's our big idea tonight. That is that unity is a gift to be enjoyed and a summons to be pursued. We're going to explore this idea of unity in those two segments of that statement. Unity as a gift to be enjoyed. And when we look at that, we're going to look at what Jesus taught us in John 17 in his prayer about what are the grounds of unity And what would it look like for us to be united? We're going to think on a big scale when we're looking at that. We're going to think about uh, Christians everywhere, worldwide. We're going to think about denominations, about uh, the split between Roman Catholic Church and Protestant churches. And then we're going to come and we're going to think about uh, unity as a summons to be pursued. A summons is a, a command, an instruction that we're to put into practice. So, as a summons to be pursued, we're going to think about how unity is expressed in this gathering as a church here in Kirribilli. So let's get started and let's uh, dig into our first point, unity as a gift to be enjoyed. The problem with you Christians is that you just can't get on with each other, can you? I mean, you're all talking about the same God. Uh, You're all on about the same stuff. Why don't you just get on and form one church? I don't really like rugby league. Uh, I used to live in Erskineville and I went for South Sydney and then I moved over this side of the bridge and I now don't go for anyone, but if I had to choose someone, maybe Manly. Well, when we're speaking with... When, when, when the outside world speaks with Christians, they imagine that your faith is just something you have on the side, something you do on a Sunday. And so it's much of a muchness if you just get over some of the differences and get together. But we're talking about the deepest beliefs that we carry, our strongest convictions. It's like saying to a lifelong Bulldogs fan, 
why don't you just go for the roosters? It's just not done like that. And we need to understand how deeply we hold these convictions. But we can be convicted about the wrong thing. So let's turn to Jesus in John chapter 17. Come with me. I think it's page, let's see, we'll all get there and see who gets there first. Page 930. John chapter 17. And let's hear what it is that Jesus tells us where to be united in and what we're to be convicted about. As Ben explained, this is Jesus uh, in the upper room with his disciples the night before he died. And he's been uh, sharing his last supper with them. And he's praying a prayer uh, before them. Uh, This prayer has been known or come to be known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And if I was to sum up the three things that he's been praying for, we haven't read these first two, but he's been praying for God the Father and him as the Son to be exalted or glorified as he dies on the cross. And that was a prayer that was answered. Secondly, he prayed that the faithful witness of his disciples, his apostles, would be preserved. And you're sitting with a record of the things that they taught in your lap. The Bible, prayer answered. Thirdly, Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. Did God forget to answer? Did Jesus not pray for long enough? Let's have a a close look at what it was Jesus prayed for when he prayed for our unity. And here I want us to concentrate on what are the grounds of our unity. So verse 20, the grounds of our unity, what is it that unites us? Verse 20, my prayer, said Jesus, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That is the grounds for unity. Belief in Jesus through the apostles' witness written down for us in the Bible. It's biblical faith in Jesus that is the grounds for unity of God's people, a unity of the church. And this is going to save us a lot of confusion because we're not united because we're all churches. We're not united because we're Anglican. We're all Anglican. We're not united because we all talk about God or even because we all claim to be Christian. What unites us is if we believe in Jesus. And Jesus goes on to show what that will look like in the next couple of verses. Verse 21 he says halfway through, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, at the start of verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. There was a lot of you in me and I in you and I in them and them in us sort of language in that reading. Essentially, it's picking up the fact that God wants to dwell in us. God wants to, uh, to be in us and he actually wants to draw us up to be in God, to be part of who, of, of what God is doing in the world. It is about the indwelling of God. And if we know our Bibles well, we know that that happens when we put our belief in Jesus, we receive God's one Holy Spirit. And God's Holy Spirit is the one Spirit that unites you to Jesus and unites you to every other person who also believes in Him. And so it doesn't matter how many ways you are different from the person sitting to your right or your left or in front or behind you, if you, are, if you are united with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, then you are at one with them. The reality is that God did answer Jesus' third prayer because there really is only one church. It is the universal church 
of all Christians, all saints, all people who have God's Spirit dwelling in them, past, present, and future, we are all one in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus prayed for our unity, it wasn't a goal, something that he wanted you to go out and attain or work hard towards. It was a gift. It was a gift that he gave you to be enjoyed. The church is united because we are all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you are united with every believer, African or Indian, Baptist or Pentecostal, rich or poor, educated or uneducated. As the Apostle Paul told us in Galatians 3, there is no Jew or Greek or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean for us to be one? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that we would all be under one overarching uh, church governance body, that we would all just be one big denomination. No matter what church you attend, what it means for us to be one is that you are united with anyone who is also united with Christ. And I wonder if you noticed the purpose of that unity. There was a real purpose for this unity that Jesus prayed. Uh, it's outlined in verse 21. Take a look halfway through. May they also be in us, Jesus prayed, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And again in verse 23, halfway through. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The purpose of our unity, our unity reveals that Jesus is the one who has been sent from God the Father. Our unity reveals and allows us to enjoy the love of God and to show the glory of God. On the earth. So let me tell you some ways we've seen this unity work beautifully in our recent history. The 1959 Billy Graham Crusade. Billy Graham, a Southern Baptist preacher, was invited to Australia and to Sydney by Anglicans, Baptists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, Methodists. They invited Billy Graham and they got together, and remarkably, 2% of the Australian population was reported to make a commitment to Jesus at that time. That was a wonderful demonstration that Jesus is the one sent from God through that unity that was displayed. Scripture Union and the Bible Society are cross-denominational organizations that work to resource God's church and also work to uphold the voice of the Bible in the public forum. Scripture in schools, as Ben prayed for before, Scripture in schools is followers of Jesus from all different denominations and all different walks of life seeking to teach children in the next generation about Jesus. You know that in our Australian judicial system, we have an uh, assumption of innocence until someone is proven guilty. I wonder if modern-day Sydney Anglicans could benefit from an assumption of unity until proven otherwise. Uh, when you meet another Christian person, do you find yourself doing what I do? Do you spend the first little while just sussing them out? You're a Christian, do you go to church? Okay, what sort of church? It's a, do they teach the Bible, that church yet? It's, uh, so it's not an Anglican church? Okay. Um, what do they believe uh, about Jesus? Are they, are they Calvinists, five-point point Calvinists, or four-and-a-half-point? We go through all these little tests Working out if people are like us, if people are in our tribe, 
if people uh, do things the way that we do them. But it's okay for us to be completely different. It's okay for us to express our belief in Jesus in different ways. What matters is that we have unity in Jesus. And I'm the first to admit uh, that that is not always easy. I went last Sunday to my brother's Baptist church where my niece was getting dedicated. And I went to this church and I prayed as I went, God, help me to rejoice in all the ways I see you at work amongst these people. And then I got there and I thought, why are we starting this service so late? Why are we only singing songs from the 90s? Why do they only have one Bible reading? Did we even pray during this service? All these different things that they did differently to you and to I here at Church by the Bridge. And we've thought long and hard about how we do church. We, we want the Bible to shape the way we do church at, at Church by the Bridge. But so has my brother's Baptist church, and they do it differently. And that's okay for them to do it differently. And what matters is that we were all speaking about the one Lord Jesus Christ and calling people to faith in him. And that was worth celebrating and enjoying But I, maybe like you, got caught up on the differences. Well, what matters is knowing the difference between primary issues and secondary issues. So secondary issues would be the kind of things that we can just get on with. So we might do church differently. We might sing differently. We might do church organization differently. We might be in a different denomination. Uh, We might uh, have a different stance on different parts of the Bible that are not essential to our unity. These are secondary issues, and we can get over them and we can work together. But there will be times when we have primary issues. These are issues with regards to the things that unite us. That is, belief in Jesus as the one who saves us and reconciles us to God. And I think it's in this sort of area that we do have to raise the fact that there are some significant primary issues and differences between the Roman Catholic Church and Protestant, uh, Protestant church beliefs. Now, when we're talking about these two, there are all sorts of varieties and spectrums. You might go down to the local Catholic church and find a wonderful Bible-believing bunch of saints trusting in the Lord Jesus to save them and him alone. You might go to a, a neighboring Protestant church and find something that is a million miles away from biblical faith in Jesus. But when we're coming to think about this idea of the Roman Catholic Church and the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestant beliefs, we can fall into one of two camps. We can say, look, there are no differences. It's all the same stuff. Or we can say, as Protestant people, the Roman Catholics all need to be converted because none of them trust in Jesus. And that is not true. There are many faithful brothers and sisters Worshipping God in the Roman Catholic Church, whom you and I are united with through belief in Christ. At the same time, it is not true that there are no differences. There are very significant differences between uh, the Bible, uh, what we as Protestant believers believe that the Bible says about trusting in Jesus and what the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church says. So when we're thinking about uh, critiquing Catholicism and the beliefs there, we, we want to focus in on that which is expressed in official Catholic doctrine, that is, uh, the Council of Trent and the Vatican Councils. And when it comes to these issues, we do have, uh, we do have issues in regards to primary matters of unity in Jesus. 
there's a number of things that might come up for us. We might have a, a problem with the way that the priest mediates between other people and God himself. We might have a, an issue with the authority, the unquestionable authority of the Pope, or with the perpetual sacrificing of Jesus in the Mass and his physical bodily presence in the bread and the juice, or bread and the wine, uh, or even the, the way that Catholic people might pray to saints or to Mary uh, instead of going straight to Jesus. But where the rubber really hits the road, and what was the thing that caused Martin Luther and his friends to protest against the Catholic Church 500 years ago in what became known as the Reformation, the Protestant Protesting Reformation, was with regards to the issue of what it means to be made right with God, what the Bible calls justification. The Bible very clearly teaches that justification, being made right with God, is an event. It is a work of God from beginning to end. It is a declaration of God that covers your life. What the Bible teaches as an event, the Roman Catholic Church has turned into a process, a work in which you cooperate with God in your being saved, a work that you never know if you've done enough to secure your salvation. What was a declaration becomes something you need to wait until you stand before God on that final day to know where your standing was. In, in goodwill and, 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 I guess, good intentions, Roman Catholic doctrine and belief sought to raise the place of people, the place of you and I, men and women, in our salvation. And in raising the role of people, they diminished the finished work of Jesus in securing our salvation. And the result is that you have a church full of people who are motivated by fear. Fear that they have never done enough to secure their salvation, to secure their good right standing with God. You have a church of people uh, who are insecure about their eternal destiny, who fear purgatory, uh, who, uh, who, who are always trusting, not in Christ, but in their own good works. Uh, on the alternative, upholding the finished work of Jesus in making you right with God, you have a church who is driven by gratitude. Jesus has done it all, and so you live with thankfulness and gratitude. You have a church of people who are deeply assured and confident that God knows where they're going and God has got them. You have a church of people who are trusting entirely in the finished work of Jesus. Now, am I united with a, a Catholic brother or sister who trusts in the Lord Jesus? Yes, I am. Am I united with the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church? No, I'm not. Now, I understand that I've just swept over 500 years of church backwards and forwarding and arguing and discussions. And I don't feel like I would have done proper justice to that, but I sought to raise some of the big issues. If you want to think more about these issues and about what it is that unites us or what it is that we can't be united with between biblical Protestant belief and Catholicism, well, James Galea's dad, uh, Ray Galea, has written a book about his experience. He grew up a happy Catholic. He read the Bible for himself, became convicted about belief in Jesus as revealed in the Bible, 
and he decided that he had to part ways with the Roman Catholic Church, and he's shared his reflections on that in this book. There were multiple copies on the bookstall. There are no longer any copies on the bookstall. So it's called Nothing in My Hand I Bring by Ray Galea, and you'll be able to find it online or at uh, Kurong Bookstore if you'd like to read that. Now, I'm aware uh, that the things that we've just spoken about uh, are quite strong, quite forceful, quite assertive, and we need to also remember the plank in the eye principle. I'm not saying that we are getting it all right, but I am identifying that as far as the Bible reveals, there are some core issues uh, with the key doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. But we uh, have issues as well that we are probably blind to which is why it's so important to be united with Christians from everywhere. Because part of the blessing of uniting with people who are different to you is that they can show you where those planks are. They can point out where you're missing truths in the Scriptures. But in summary, uh, we are united with all people who are also in Christ. I want to say, don't rush out and join an ecumenical council to try and bring all churches together. Unity is a gift that Jesus Christ gave us. It's not something you have to go out and make. It is the finished work of Jesus. You are united with all Christians everywhere, so enjoy that and embrace that. But as we saw, uh, be discerning about the grounds of our unity and when it is right to be united and when it is not. So we come to our second point now, and that is unity as a summons to pursue. I'd love you to turn uh, with me to Ephesians chapter 4. It was on page 1007. And as you do, I'll share with you an interesting observation uh, from the New Testament about unity. Interestingly, uh, the command or the summons to be united in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, is a command or a summons that is never given to uh, the churches of a particular region. Uh, It never goes to all the churches of Asia or all the Macedonian churches. They're never called to be united. Nor is the whole global church of the time called to be united. No, the summons to be united is always given to the local church. The place to express unity is right here at Church by the Bridge. And listen to the summons we're given in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Well, what does it mean for church by the bridge to be united? You might have noticed as we read through these, uh, these two readings in Ephesians 4 on unity and John 17, they were very Trinitarian. Uh, they were mentioning God. Uh, you'll see it here, verse 4, there is one Spirit. Verse 5, there is one Lord. Verse 6, there is one God and Father of all. When we're called to be united, we're called to take shape after God as a Trinitarian being. So what does it look like for God to be Trinity? Father, Son, Spirit. God is three different persons. Different persons with different roles, doing different activities. But they are united in one being. United with one purpose. United with one goal. And what is the goal of God? Well, if you asked Ephesians... Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 would say, The goal of God, the purpose of God, is to unite, bring together all things in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. That's God's goal, and that can be our goal as well. That's something we can do. We can be 
different people. Different people doing different roles, having different activities, but one united goal and one specific purpose. To bring all people to Jesus, to unite us as a people in Jesus to the glory of God the Father. And so as I think about Church by the Bridge, I know that there are very different people amongst us. Different people from different backgrounds. There are fifth-generation Christians and newly converted atheists. We have uh, believers from Muslim backgrounds and from Hindu backgrounds. We have people from North Sydney, South Sydney, East Sydney, West Sydney. We have Londoners and Los Angeles. We have ethical vegans and pig hunters. We are a diverse group of people here at Church by the Bridge. And the more different we are, the more glory it brings to Jesus that he can bring us together. So in the Ephesian church, there were Jews and Gentiles, two people groups who were kept divided by their rituals and their religion for centuries. Well, Jews began trusting in their Messiah. Gentiles began trusting in the Jewish Messiah. But there was only one church in the city to worship in. And so these people who had been divided for years and years in so many ways were brought together and there was only one place to worship Jesus. And it's there that they were called to be united in Christ. That Jesus broke down the dividing walls, the barriers, the hostility between them and made them one. So the more different we are, the more it glorifies Jesus because the more it shows his power to unite his people. There's beauty in the unity of different people. But let's be honest, there's also going to be real struggle as we seek to be united. Which is why God gave us that summons in verse 3 to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. You know, it would be much easier to uh, attend a peace meeting and, uh, and discuss what peace looks like or to, to make peace with someone, have a conference and, and, and make that peace. But we know in reality that the real challenge with peace is maintaining it, is keeping it going. It's really hard work. And so there are many ways that you can maintain this unity amongst this church gathering. But one of the key ones that's picked up here in Ephesians is the idea of being a peacemaker. Peacemakers who pursue the unity of the church. And we know what it's like, don't we, to be in divided groups, divided work teams, divided sports teams, uh, disunited families. It's exhausting. It's tiring. You waste so much time thinking about who you, what you said to who and, and you're thinking all about how, how you're getting on and you're never actually just getting on with getting on and doing what you're called to do. But to be a united team or to be a united workplace or, or a united family, well, that's a beautiful picture. And you can thrive in that place. And you can get on with the work that you're called to do because you know that you're working for the team as well and you know that they've got your backs. Well, we are called to be a united people and to be peacemakers. And chapter 4, verse 2 of Ephesians gives us just four characteristics of a peacemaker. And I wonder, as you think about how you might work to strengthen the unity of this gathering of people, I wonder which of these four characteristics you could seek to grow in this week. Chapter 4, verse 2. It's back over the page here. It says, Be completely humble and gentle. Let me tell you as an example of Keith Condy, Sarah Condy's husband. Keith Condy, 22 years as a Bible college lecturer. Keith knows his stuff. Keith humbly 
sits under the teaching of the students that he had. He taught Paul, he taught James, he taught Susan, he taught myself. And he sits under our teaching and he sits humbly. And, and if you've ever spoken with Keith, he has deep, deep convictions. But he is gentle in the way that he speaks to people. He's not weak. No, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is strength that is controlled. And so Keith is a theological giant, but he is gentle and humble in his convictions. The next instruction uh, or the next uh, character trait of a peacemaker is be patient. Robin Greenway. Nine years she served as the secretary uh, to our church. She answered the phone and responded to the most unrealistic and unreasonable requests from you and I and from our surrounding community, but she always did it with incredible patience. Treating one another with patience is a great virtue of peacemaking because you are going to be further along the journey of your, uh, your being made like Christ than others, and it calls for great patience amongst us. In Bible study, when you hear people splurting out answers that are just uh, heretical or outrageous, could you be patient? Could you be more patient with them? Could you bear with one another? And the last one is, is that last instruction, bear with one another in love. Viv Chapman. Viv Chapman spearheads our mercy ministries at Church by the Bridge. Viv deals with those who are more different from our different and diverse community, the real rough edges of our community. And yet Viv always does it with such love. Another translation of this verse would be accepting one another in love. Viv is always willing to accept people and actually she finds it to be a great delight to be part of such a diverse group of people and to minister to people who are so different to herself. How could you be accepting, more accepting of one another and be a peacemaker in that way? Don't think any sort of uh, grand plans. Just think over supper. How could I speak to someone I don't normally speak to? Someone a little different to me. How could I more embrace that person in my Bible study who I'm so different to? Well, in closing, our unity is not something that Jesus has given as a goal or a task that we need to go out and create. It is a gift that he has created for us. We are united as the people of God. God's church is one because we are all one in Christ. Our unity, though, is not uniformity. We're not to all be the same. No, the beauty of God's unity is seen as different people come together and are all made one in Christ. So unity is a gift that you are to enjoy. And unity is a summons, Church by the Bridge, that you are to work hard and pursue amongst this gathering of the local church. We're going to finish tonight by saying the Apostles' Creed. Words that express the faith that unites us. Words that Christians have been saying for 2,000 years. In a stand, in an expression of our unity, we're going to all stand up and we're going to say these words with those who've gone before us. So please stand as we say together the words of the Apostles' Creed. So Church by the Bridge, what is the faith that unites us? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.